This podcast is brought to you by ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. Learn how Curtis Stone makes 70 grand a year off of a third of an acre by clicking on the link in the show notes. Also, if you're into trees and permaculture and all that fun stuff, go to NewFarmSupply.com and save 20% on anything you purchase with discount code SAMPLE. Thank you guys so much and enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour, another special live at PV3 birthday podcast. Today's the birthday, oh, Chris. That's right. You yeah. Me happy birthday. Yeah, yeah. We got the uh, the birthday podcast going on. But uh, how does it feel to be twenty five? Oh, it <laughs> felt great six years ago. <laughs> Fortunately, the hangovers aren't quite the same yeah. when you're twenty five versus no, I'm. I'm fine. I'm. I don't. Uh, I don't get hungover. Just teasing. So, um, anyways, this gentleman here, uh, he is a, is a microgreen expert, and it's it's I'm always forget I always in your head it's Pedal Flow Farms. It's the food peddlers. The food peddlers, yes. yeah. So it's an all bike uh, microgreens farmer from Vancouver, British Columbia, Mr. Chris Thoreau. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good. Yeah, you know we're in day. <laughs> Two or three of the conference, yeah. lots of good speakers. I'm totally amped and I'm I'm loving it. Yeah. So what do you like for you coming here as a speaker? Because I guess this isn't um, this isn't even anything I told you. We talk about <laughs> the elevator up here, but for you coming here as a speaker, like, were you really looking forward to coming here and like, like, do you, you kind of find this like really exciting and motivational for you to take back to your farm? Uh, no, I'm I'm just here for the money. Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it it is i i was actually during one of the i caught the last of one of the marketing talks earlier yeah. today and uh i texted two messages back for ideas you know that i got right away so you know i'm, I'm definitely here in, in, a, in a mentorship role but i'm definitely trying to learn from other folks as well so picking up stuff along the way and that's all stuff i'm going to take back and integrate into what we're doing for sure yeah no it's it's been like have you struggled with when you're not even we were talking yesterday when your first talk, it was like, man, JM's going around right now. It's like, you really wanted to be there and I really wanted to be there. But I was like, man, I got to, for you, for what you guys do, it applies more for me because I'm not going to do it on as large of a scale. But I think, you know, I think anybody, you know, microgreens are this, they're still kind of a niche market and not a lot of people know what they are. Um, but, uh, you know, before you had this, this enterprise, because you said you guys are shooting to do... Two hundred and two hundred thousand dollars in revenue this year. Yeah, and but before that, you know, you didn't, you weren't, you didn't get there right away. Um, so I guess, like, how did you, you know, what, what on your path kind of got you in the on the journey of farming? Yeah, so so getting onto farming is one thing, and microgreens is another. Yeah, you know, you know, before I was farming, I was I was a bartender. I worked in the restaurant industry. I partied a lot and I drank a lot. You know, I had a, I had a fairly, I think, typical lifestyle. And, uh, you know, didn't give a lot of thought. I don't think I had given a lot of thought about what I was doing in life in general. Yeah. You know, and in many ways I had. That's that's a whole other story. But um, <laughs> at a certain point, 
I started changing my my uh, relationship with my restaurants. So I started to take it a lot more professionally. And you know, like I, I'm a bartender, but I want to be a good bartender. Yeah. And, and 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 that really did happen. But I'm like, okay, I'm I'm a pretty good bartender, but. I'm not particularly satisfied with the bartender lifestyle, the restaurant lifestyle. There was a lot to offer, but I knew there was something missing. And I'd been reading uh, with a group of friends different books that were sort of exploring, you know, the meaning of life and uh, um, the Bhagavad Gita and and the other one being uh, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Yeah. And we kind of were, we were all making these changes in our lives and what 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 the sort of turning point for me was basically a really wicked hangover. And I remember, <laughs> so I was working on this beautiful, uh, you know, balcony uh, a bar yeah. in Vancouver uh, overlooking, uh, overlooking the ocean. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm moving to a small island and I'm going to grow food and be self-sufficient. And I basically, I quit my job. I, I became a bike courier. It's a bit of a transition job, which was kind of new as well. And, and I, and I moved from Vancouver to Vancouver Island and, you know, the rest, in a sense, is history. When going into that with that kind of attitude, like I want to grow food, I want this to happen, things kind of fell into place. Interestingly, I had applied for a job. I got it as a in, in another restaurant. I thought, and you still need to make money. I lasted a week. I'm like, okay, another one. I lasted about five days in a cafe, and then a few interviews I did, even though I was well qualified, they didn't hire me because they could tell. They could tell I was done, right? They could yeah. tell I didn't have that energy. And and yeah, so I, I think what happened is I got lucky and I got a piece of land and I started meeting meeting the uh, the right people. And my introduction to agriculture was through permaculture. Yeah. So I, I just happened to meet somebody who um, was big into permaculture, was designing a, a great permaculture um, uh, garden in Victoria, Jeff Johnson. Uh, he's a great permaculturalist, a great designer. He's... And, and not only conceptually, but he executes, right? Yeah. And, he, and he's done a lot of good stuff. So I really just you know, had the right people came into my life when, when, when I needed them. And in, in southern Vancouver Island, where I ended up going, and, and I knew nothing about it when I was going there, there was a good collection of small farms, you know, one to ten acres, growing mixed vegetables for the market. Uh, and so I just, I ended up getting into that crowd and the certified organic crowd and those markets. And just one thing led to another, led to another. I was farming. I got engaged with the community on an organizational level and that became my new life. So, and you had, and you had zero experience at doing it. You just were like, I'm going to do it. And you just did it. Pretty much zero experience. I had maybe grown a few plants here and there. Um, well, I had done some sprouting in in a, in, a, in a cupboard at home and, and played with that a bit and got pretty intrigued with it for sure. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of actual gardening and having any systems and any of that stuff, no, not at all, not at all. So that's uh that's interesting. So okay, so you have this far farm. You're really engaged in the community. So back then, were you, were you trying to sell to restaurants? Or did you have a CSA? Yeah. So this the CSA model was happening then. So this was 2001. So if, you know. 15, 16 years ago, um, my thing was the farmer's markets and restaurants, basically, and mostly farmer's markets. Now, I had a small piece of land I was leasing, and I was I was learning. And and like having seen uh, Jean-Martin Fortier today and Curtis Stone, like those systems didn't exist then. There was some good stuff, obviously, the Elliot Coleman books, and really big into the permaculture, really big into no-till stuff. But it into as for really efficient farming systems 
I didn't have a, like a, I think a good mentor in that. Lots of good stuff going on, but so like I wouldn't say I was a particularly good farmer. You know, I, I was okay, and I learned lots. And my big thing was soil building. I was way more into soil building yeah. than I was into growing crops, actually. And was the soil building that was from reading Elliot Coleman and, and just like what he was talking about? Was it more like a permaculture thing? Um, uh, it was a coming from a big no-till perspective. Yeah. Um, and from um. Some of the some of the Japanese techni- techniques as well. So yeah. there was just you know all these different layering systems and and minimizing uh, soil disturbance and, and and all this stuff, which a lot of the uh, organic farmers end up cultivating the soil a lot. And and right away I noticed like this isn't what you know this isn't what I learned in the sort of theory of what soil management should be. Yeah. So part of my thing was well how do I you know how do I do something different because whenever, whenever somebody gets new in, into farming new they're trying to revolutionize something yeah. right? and, and most of us fail yeah um, you know we just go to doing what everyone else is doing but um, that was one that I really focused on and then so, I went to doing what everyone else was doing yeah but uh but for so but did you have a degree in like ecology or anything uh, nothing no no degree at that point at all I just uh, you know I had a good work ethic when did you go back to college so, uh, so after running the farm for, for, for many years, you know, there was a point in my life where like, I need to, I need to get a degree, you know, I don't know what it was, was the trigger, but that was a sort of rite of passage that I had to sort of experience. It, w- it was an achievement I needed to make. Yeah. Um, and it was mainly for yourself. Like, do you think it was because you were, you were living that bartender lifestyle and you, and all that, or was it just something that you felt? Now, you know, at that point, uh, like I said, I've been farming for six or seven years and I had a pretty good skill set, not only in, in farming, which was okay, but also in um, just organizing things and, and systems. You know, I came up with some good spreadsheets and, and just there was a few things I did quite well and, and felt quite qualified for a number of job postings I had seen, but the requirement was always, you know, you needed a degree. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, like I need to jump through that hoop. And then, and so you didn't even have a four year degree then or? No. Okay. So, so I, I, I did a year of university after high school. I drank it away. Yeah. Did some good drinking. I will <laughs> say that. And then, and then I actually, I left, I grew up in Saskatchewan in, in Canada. Then I went and lived for four years in England. Yeah. And so that's actually where I sort of cultivated my trade as a bartender. Um, so yeah, like just, you know, universally, it just wasn't the right time. There there were many factors in that. So yeah, it wasn't until I I was about 31 that it came the right time. But I'm, I'm even sure like with, with Justin, like traveling, I know when I turned 18, I went to England and I think experiencing another culture at a young age is actually like a really, like it definitely changed the way I looked at the world. And I was only there for six weeks living there with family and, um, so I can only imagine, like, maybe, yeah, you were having fun and getting drunk, but, you know, whatever. I'm sure you, you took away a lot from interacting with that culture or even maybe maybe you can't apply it to gardening. But, I mean, I just maybe as a life experience, it was something to to, to, to kind of put in your, in your in, I guess, in your, your, your bucket of accomplishments. So life experience would be uh, a very euphemistic way to put it. Um, So what was interesting and very difficult about my time in England was, you know, I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan, Prairie City in the middle of Canada. Not much happens there. So I had a fairly narrow view of the world. Wouldn't say I had a particularly great family there as well. Yeah. And so when I moved to England... I kind of got hit with a, 
a, a ton of bricks of reality, basically. Yeah. And I spent the better part, actually, the whole of my time in England, actually, in a fairly severe depression. And so my experience of England was very much, you know, defined by yeah. that, right? Like England's a dark gray place. It's busy. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of development. It's 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 a there's a lot of history. It's a very tough city, and and so that that really wore me down. I have, for for years after leaving, I had these recurring nightmares <laughs> about, about England, which which have subsided now. Um, In one second, man. I think they. Do you guys need us out of this room? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was a nice. Uh, it was a nice uh, break we had to take there. Apparently, we were in a room we weren't supposed to be in anymore. So anyways, so England was kind of beating you down. England was beating me down. And so that, like a big part, of, and the value of the, ex, the experience was, was introspection. Like yeah. it, it was a time to get to know myself well. So yeah. that's what I got from that experience for sure. Okay. And, and that, that I still use. Like that, that created the sort of you know, perspective I use all the time now, you know, throughout life. So, so it may be, it was a very difficult way to get there, yeah. but it's what needed to happen to, to bring me a level of self-awareness, I think, to do well in the world. Okay. So, so you get back from England, you're, you're farming, you, you decide to shut down shop and then you go back. Oh, no, no. I get back from England. This is before farming. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. farming. Yeah. That's yeah. So you yeah. come back and then you, you're a bartender in Vancouver then. Yeah. So you just you were you're a bartender there. You're like it's time to go back home. It's old because Vancouver's not back home. So what led you to go to Vancouver from England? Yeah, I'd been out to Vancouver before. I thought, yeah, if I'm going to go back, I'm not going back to Regina. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was finding somewhere else, and Vancouver seemed like it'd be a good place. I br I brought a, I brought a, a Brit back with me as well. He, a buddy that I'd worked with was like, I want to go to Canada. So let's yeah, let's go. So that's what we did. That sounds cool. And then did you guys keep working together or? Uh, no, we didn't actually. We, we didn't keep working together because he needed to use my social insurance for his other job. <laughs> so there was, I, I probably shouldn't say that on tape. But I can yeah, edit so, that out. Yeah, no, it, it's good. He's, he's long gone. Um, so yeah, no, we didn't work together. We lived together. We hung out. Yeah. So it worked out. That's pretty quite cool. Good, yeah. And then, um, so then you went to, uh, um, okay. So fast forward back to farming. You're, so now what was going on with the farming? And I think you said that before, um, that you're like, you know what? I need to move on to something else. I need to go back to go to school. Yeah. So you like, like I said, I, uh, there was a lot of work out there that I thought I would be well qualified for, but had this de degree requirement and you can still get into those things without the degree, but it was just sort of a, like, yeah, I think, I think I need to do that. So so I did. I left the farm. I went back to school, which meant moving from Vancouver Island back to the mainland to Vancouver and, and basically started this degree in agroecology. And, and when I did that, I still wanted to keep my hands in the soil. And there was this sort of, there was a model, an urban farming model, which was this multiple backyard model. Yeah. And, and that to me, like managing multiple pieces of land like that just doesn't work for my brain. Yeah. And, and who was, was that the spin model? Was that was that the spin model, like that kind of Curtis kind of modified? So at that point, I don't know that it would have been the spin model. It might have. I can't remember. Yeah. I, I don't remember it being 
anything in particular, but I, I kind of knew, having worked close to Victoria and within the city and with this the, these permaculture mentors I had, like I, I knew that existed. I had seen it. So okay. it might have been just right around the time it was developing or maybe it was. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. But Okay. Uh. So then you're like, you know, I, I don't want to do this backyard thing. That sounds really stressful for me. Too chaotic. I want to just focus on, but I want to, I want to, want to stay growing stuff while I'm in school. So then what, what was next? So then the trick was, what do I grow in order to be profitable? Yeah. And, and having, having had a, a very, un, well, not a very unsuccessful farm, but not a thriving farm, I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to work these long hours and get little pay in return. Right. And so I had grown sunflower shoots, you know, a little bit on the farm, a little bit, you know, here and there. I just, in bits and pieces and I thought huh like this seems to me the crop that can do it or the type of crop that can do it and I, you know, I started thinking about it started thinking about it and being at, at, at the University of British Columbia I thought well I could make a I could make a project out of this. Yeah. And, and basically when I, you know, I fretted for a long time because I was about to become a father at the same time. Yeah. I'm like, can I do this? I don't know what to do. There's all these unknowns. And did you meet your wife when you were farming initially then? Uh, nope. We met after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My partner at the time. So, okay. so there was a long period of humming and hawing. And then just one day, I don't know what it is. I'm like, I'm going for it. I think it was a, it was a conversation with the professor. I was going to set up a, some research to, to do it, uh, source seed. And I'm like, yeah, if I do this, th then I'm going. And I, it was a couple of weeks of fretting and then just boom, I booked the greenhouse space and, and was off to the races. And because it was a directed studies project, it was great. I got, uh, I got credit for it. But at the yeah. same time, I had created this, this small business, which would be you know, growing sunflower sprouts for the market for, you know, for the summer, summer season. Yeah, so, okay, so you're growing in a greenhouse then, and you go for the summer, and then, and then when did you move it, the operation into your living room? So, <laughs> so at that point, well, I was just growing in these sort of modified benches, like these covered benches that gave me some climate control. And I'd done that for, for a few years. So, you know, finished the directed studies, found a piece of private land, you know, upped production and brought on some staff and, 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 and had this urban farm that ran for five months of the year. It was my summer job while I went to school. Yeah. And, and then one, you know, one winter, you know, the end of the season's there, I had a bit of work. I, I went off and I did a trip to Terra Madre in Italy and, and the slow food and, and uh, event and had a great time. And I came back and I'm like, ah, I, I actually don't have any work right now. But I thought, huh, I've got this product yeah. and I've got this clientele base. And I, um, I called a few of my restaurant customers up and said, hey, like, I'm thinking of doing some winter production. You know, what do you think? I was like, yeah, we'll take stuff for sure. That's awesome. So, so I just, it was just sunflower. At that point, I'd been growing a few different crops, but went back to just sunflower. And, um, and so I, I kind of, I, I did the math. And I'm like, you know, I can, I can do fairly well with this. And I, I basically built the, sh you know, I had all the, everything I needed already to go. I just had to sort of modify it for my apartment and, and had that up within a couple of days. And the other thing there was, it's like, okay, this also gives me the chance to see how we could do this over the winter season. You know, I'd just been a summer season grower. So it was the first sort of like, what's possible? And, and once again, the rest was history. The, 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 the indoor production worked great. I got a good sense of the growing difference, you know, made 
decent enough money doing that with that customer base. And that formed sort of the foundation for, for trying to pursue infrastructure to do year-round production. Okay. And then, so so then you're, you're looking to get infrastructure to do your year-round production. And then what brought you to... We're gonna get this. We're gonna get this shipping container and turn it into a greenhouse. So there's a lot of shipping containers in Vancouver. It's it's yeah, a port yeah. city, and there'd been I've I'd seen a lot of designs for houses and, and different structures and yeah. workshops and storage spaces. So there was a trend going on that I kind of wanted to capitalize on. The other thing is is infrastructure for urban farming has to be mobile because you have yeah. no land tenure. So it had that piece as well. And then uh, the business at that point had moved from being my sole proprietorship to a cooperative. Yeah. So now as a, so as a cooperative, we had actually qualified for this granting cycle that was coming up through one of the local uh, co-ops. And we applied for a grant based on this. Yeah, we're going to build the shipping container greenhouse. We got the grant and we built it. And I knew a greenhouse grower from another project and or a builder from another project. And he came in and did most of the work and was awesome and... Once again, the rest the rest yeah, is history, yeah. you know, like it just it, things just fell into place like that having a vision and then taking the it. steps to achieve that vision. And taking yeah. action. And so do you think like you're cuz you are really you are really meticulous and you I it feels like you're really meticulous in your planning. Like it's like I really like I want to make sure I do this like you're always taking action but I don't you you don't take reckless action, I don't think. So I would call it semi-reckless. Um, well, it's planned I, reckless. I think about it. Like, I, I try to, I, uh, I really sort of play things through in my head. Like, what am I going to do? How yeah. am I going to do it? You know, what are the risks here? Yeah. You know, the one big thing with this, like, we're going to own the shipping container, right? Like, yeah. what if, you know, owning a bunch of benches I can take a play, take apart in a couple hours is one thing. Owning a shipping container is another. Yeah. Um, but at a certain point, you know, I think, you know, I, I just tried to acknowledge that fear and just say, you know, fuck it. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll go for it and find out. And, and like, do you, so when you buy stuff, do you, um, cause you know, some what we've said off, you know, just for me picking your brain before I got you on the podcast was, you know, one thing you, you, it, when I showed you my setup that I was like trying to work in and working an idea with you. So it's great about those is that you can resell those anywhere yeah. Like when you make a purchase, do you do you think automatically like, can I resell these and get some money back? Worst case scenario? No, not usually. But in that case, because it was sort of a venture, like we're going to do this. And we had looked at customizing shelving and it would have been expensive and it would have been awesome. But there would have been nothing we could do with it afterwards. And at yeah. this point, the model, you know, I didn't know how well the model would work or not. Yeah. So, so, yeah. And I knew this other shelving would work just fine. And that makes so. sense. Yeah. And then so now how did you go about? Because you were doing the microgreens operation on your own. And then so how did you find your your other partners for the co-op? Like what what did were you did you already have some people in mind? Did you already have some people that were helping you? Yeah, so they were they were people who were staff, right? And, okay. and were interested in doing more. Yeah. So previously when you were running your, your business for your summer job, they were staff with you then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So then you just went back, you called them and you said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this full time. Are you guys interested? I think we could do like a co-op together, and they were like, "Yeah, let's do it." Pretty much, and part of it was like I didn't I didn't want to have to be all me doing everything all the time, so I really wanted to have a team that could do that stuff together. No, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So, so you have the you have the um, infrastructure in place. 
you get the grant money, you get the production going, you get your customers. So how long does it take for you guys to really start generating revenue? So, you know, you're like, okay, we're, we're, we're getting in the clear, like we're, we're getting to where this is, this is really going to work. Uh, oh, right away. So, so when we were just doing summer production, it was like thirty-five, forty thousand dollars a year in production over that five-month period. You know, the season ended. We built the container; it was ready to go for January, basically. And the next year, we did a hundred thousand. You know, we extended our season. We 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 had a longer season so we could hold our clientele base longer. And yeah, right away, you know, tripled, just about tripled revenue in one year. That's pretty awesome. Now, now for gaining revenue. Now, are are you guys always going? Are you guys always looking to scale up based on demand? Like how many new customers we have? Because I know, I know you. Like we we said before, your your new goal right now is two hundred. But you said in your in in your your shipping container greenhouse, you guys could could be at full capacity and probably be doing two hundred fifty thousand and in, yeah. in, in revenue. So I, is it just is that that's the eventual goal and we're just going year by year by year trying to get our, our systems down and trying to slowly progress this? Now nah, systems are down. Uh, the, the big challenge is finding the market. Yeah. Um, putting the time into it and then and then holding that market. So microgreens are a very niche crop and they don't appeal to everybody. I think one thing we've done in Vancouver is made more of a market for it because people are more familiar with them and with, with good quality microgreens. So part of it is, is is finding the market and part of it is actually taking the time to go and find that market for sure. Yeah. And that was something so... And then so for, for getting new customers, it was funny you said sometimes the best thing is when a chef leaves because yeah. it, it'll get you extra customers. Um, but um, now, now something else to kind of talk about because I think like what the biggest theme for, for everybody here at the conference is quality of life. And so like it's a, it's a co-op. So how do you guys structure as a co-op so everybody's getting a good quality of life? Like you're here right now in San Diego, enjoying life. Everybody else is back working. Somebody else is going to go on vacation back in a month back to, to wherever he's from in Europe. So how, how do you guys structure this? To, and how do you guys not want to kill each other and stuff like that? Yeah, so so in general, like it's not a super stressful job. There's not a high demand for everybody to be working 50-hour weeks by any means. We're very efficient. Um, so, you know, our, our number one tool is actually just constant communication. So someone will say, hey, like I, I, I want to go away at this point, you know, and you know, we're at whatever, and we double-check the schedule and say, okay, no one else has a conflict then, you're good to go. You know, and, and booking two to three days off a week or two even is usually fine. Like this, this I've had in the calendar for probably six months. So people know, they, they expect that. We adjust our staffing for it and, and then we're good to go. Everybody wants that flexibility in their schedule. So everybody's always happy to accommodate everyone else. That makes sense. And then for another question, because it is a workers co-op. Now, how does it work if, let's say you guys are generating more money and you're like, you know what? We can afford to hire an employee that might not be a part of the co-op. How do you guys, um, how do you guys manage that? Like, how wh- how do you guys determine that if that's that's liable or not? Yeah, so we've already got an employee. We've had lots of employees. Um, the The question is, do we need someone to do yeah, more hours, yeah. right? And, and often we do because we want to be buffered. We don't want to be the ones having to do all the work all the time. And and after a while, there's certain grunt work that we don't want to do. So, yeah, we're always looking at that. What are the available hours? Do we have enough staff power to fill them? Or do we need to bring someone else in? Yeah. So, yeah. 
And it, it varies per season. It varies depending what farmers' markets there are. It, it, it varies on a bunch of factors. So, yeah, it, it's a conversation. And sometimes it's, it's one of us saying, I want more hours. But usually yeah. it's like we need another set of hands. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, here's something else I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, have you talk about. So now a lot of people, just for workers co-op, because that, that's kind of a new thing to me too. So, and, I, and I'm sure there are workers co-ops in, um, in the U.S., Oh yeah. Now, how do you guys structure your own pay? How do you guys figure out how to pay yourselves? Uh, so in the beginning, we all—I think we all had equal pay. So there, there's been a lot of shit that's gone gone on in our co-op. <laughs> so I'm going to skip over some yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. But but um, yeah. So we, we try to we're we're trying to have everybody on as high a salary as possible. That um, we have varying rates. So 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 I was making and, and still am making more than the other co-op members. So I, I, I have a greater skill set. I, I generally have more responsibility because I have way more experience. Uh, if we bring somebody new on, they'll start off at a lower level and, and then they'll work their way up. So we don't have a great system for that. Once again, our system is discussion and communication. Yeah. Well, we've talked about maybe we should have a more structured sort of policy towards that. So if, if, you know, we may come to a situation where we can say, well, we're making more money, we can bump up everybody's wages. Right now, people are at a decent enough wage. If we don't bump up wages, that means our expenses are lower. That means hopefully we make more profit and our profit can get paid back to the members at the end of the year as dividends. It's like a bonus. So, yeah, to, so yeah. if you make less per hour, you can make more per dividend. And so, so that's, that's the thing. It's like I might get paid less and, and you, you might even say, oh, I'm going to put my, uh, my, uh, my wage down to 15 bucks an hour. And then you're getting this basically sort of, it's almost like... Um, I can't think of what the term, but you're banking $3 an hour. Yeah. It doesn't really work that way. So what we're trying to do is a, a good wage. So while you're working, you've got good revenue coming in, but leaving a buffer. So at the end of the year, we've got a dividend. And now if, if now your employees that you have they're now, would it be possible for them to buy in to become a member of the workers own co-op? Or? Yeah. So two, like two, two, two employees have bought in and joined the co-op and then two members have left. Uh, it, it's, it's built into the cooperative association act in Canada that at a point you actually have to offer a membership to an employee Okay. or, or get, offer them the opportunity. Like you can still interview them and, and qualify them and say like the co-op just doesn't need you as a member right now. We can't offer you a position. Um, but that would be our goal is, is to bring people on. Yeah. Uh, literally like, the day before I came here, I got the check from our from our, our second new member, and uh, already, like I think it's going to really change how she interacts with the co-op. And when we get back, we'll be meeting and talking more, and just getting her way more integrated into things. And then, so now, when you leave the co-op, do you do you like sell your shares, or how does that? You, yeah, you would sh sell your shares back to the co-op. We have a grace period in terms of when that has to be paid back by. Um, yeah, we can bring someone else new in. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, and then I think, on a side note, um, just to just because you have more interests than microgreens, and it's like, and I don't know if you want to talk about that too, but like balance, like because I think that's important because I think like that's that's why people choose this lifestyle is because your balance, like, so you know the pedal power thing, or, or you know. Um, I keep messing up the name like a like a freaking asshole, but anyways, <laughs> like the but the food peddlers, you know, co op, um, you know, it, it, you have time to be able to go and do these new things because we were talking a lot about exercise and cross training. Yeah, yeah. And like so, so how how nice is it for you to 
to just have to work a little bit and then to just still have the free time to 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 be able to go and pursue these interests and other other things and with like exercise and everything else like that. Yeah, so I still work a lot because um, I do the food peddlers and I do other work. And yeah. um, but what I do and 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 I hear this time and time again. So at, at a certain point several years ago, I, I made a decision that uh, I really wanted to have more recreation time in my life. Uh, I, my son is now seven years old, and, and then he was about four. I'm like, I want to spend more time together. I want to spend valuable time together. I want to be more engaged. If I'm going to live in Vancouver and pay this ridiculous rent, yeah. I, want to, I want to take it for all it's worth. Yeah, yeah. And, and a part of that is enjoying the outdoors. And I just basically, I started doing that. And what it meant is I worked more efficiently. So in one of my presentations, you know, I talked about these different types of laziness, you know. These are the, the types of laziness I'd identified in myself and then developed strategies to counter that. Yeah. You know, so when I see things in myself that aren't working, I try to find new ways of being. And that can be a long process. But my goal there was work more efficiently, be smarter with my time and, and what I commit to and, and spend way more time, you know, enjoying life. Yeah, and so like with the with really balancing your time and figuring that out, like somebody once said, like really successful people say no, more no's than yes. Like, how do you like how do you evaluate what's going to be good for your time management, or what's going to be like what works for you? Is it just something that you you've really developed, and you're like, yeah, I don't want to do this, so I'm not going to. It's it's not even about whether I want or don't want to do it. The first thing is, do I have time? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so, you know, someone's, you know, like right now I don't have time. I can't take on anything else. Yeah. Now, if somebody came to me with something like super intriguing and it was going to pay well and it was be, you know, be like, oh, well, but probably what that would mean is I would drop something else. Yeah, yeah. Right? So at this point, <laughs> it's funny, like right now I have nothing to drop. Like I could step back more from the food peddlers, but this is a big transition time. And so I want to put time and energy into that. And I work another contract that's pretty high demand and super awesome right now, like very, very exciting. So it's like, you know, there's probably not much that could come around right now that's, that's going to pull me away fr from what I'm doing in a year. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, as it is now, like I'm pretty engaged. Now, do you ever see yourself like in the future, like possibly like selling your share of food peddlers and moving out of Vancouver? Yeah, potentially, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, the the future's really open for me, so yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I I just know how how much you're into running, hiking, and 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 all that other stuff. Like, I don't know where you'd go to because you're really not that far from that with Vancouver. But I can, I mean, I don't know. I think it's important for people to leave. To just kind of look at their life in, in stages. Like, you know, microgreens are really good now, but maybe one day you'll wake up and be like, I don't I don't really want to do this anymore. But yeah. um, something else I wanted to talk to you about is preparedness. Because one thing that you're really big on with with microgreens, because they are sprouts and there are there are a lot of regulations with those, is is being ahead of the curve when you're kind of going when you're when you're preparing to deal with bureaucracy in a sense. Yes. So, and, and what do you, so what do you think is the best way for people to combat going against regulations and, and the inconsistencies and everything else like that? Yeah. So, so number one is you need to know the regulation and, and, and in a lot of conversations, people will say the regulation is restrictive and where the restriction often comes from is that person's lack of understanding of the regulation. So what I like to do is, is find, you know, know the regulation well, 
and then either then you start hacking it, right? You know, you know. I go through each thing. What do I need to do here? What do I need to do here? What do I need to do here? And then the second question is like, can I do that? Does my model allow me to do that? Yeah. And you know, you often have to read a regulation multiple times and think about it a lot. And then you're kind of like, okay, well, this is how I'm going to do that. Now, when whoever wrote this regulation did it, they didn't have this in mind, but I'm interpreting this regulation just like you would interpret a law. Yeah. And this is what I'm going to do in order to, to, to meet this standard. So I really push that. You know, I've definitely been the, you know, screw the regulations. I'm going to try and get out of that. That's not a um, successful business strategy. Big business can't get out of regulations. The bigger you get, the more successful you get, the more you're going to be hemmed in because you're so on the radar. Yeah. If, if I'm growing 10 trays of microgreens a week and trading them with my friends and taking them to one single market in a, in a, in a dark alley somewhere, yeah, screw the regulations. But when I want to be, you know, the name that people think of when you say microgreens in Vancouver, I can't really do that. Yeah. So the, the, the system, when I think about that, the system in the beginning was designed for success. So we just addressed that stuff, like the sanitation issues and the, the documentation issues right from the beginning. And we made lots of mistakes and still lots of gaps. Yeah. But when it came to being accountable... <laughs> Bless you. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, when it came to being accountable, we could step up and say, "Well, we've done a lot of this stuff, and you know, we've had a few inspections, and generally they go fairly well. And 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 there's gaps, and then we fill those gaps." And so. and something else too that was interesting because we were talking about, you know, growing. Most people are growing microgreens in their basement, and we've talked about you know having people come in your house to to check it out. If you do scale up, I mean, it eventually you're going to have to have people visit you if you don't want to get a shipping container or you or something like that and you yep. know something i really liked what you said is then then do everything you can to fit it because when they first came to your greenhouse they had no idea how to even put it in their book so um yeah and we you know our, our new one of our new marketing strategies is you know we used to contact restaurants take them samples now we contact restaurants and invite them to our structure and so when they see our operation you know that really draws them in on top of that we give them a great product it goes well so yeah yeah and how successful has that been getting them to get away from their restaurant it's to it's tough see you? but chefs in vancouver like to know what's going on in the farms they like to engage um so yeah like like for them and sometimes like yeah let's get out and see something new right we're we're, we're not asking them to drive 45 minutes out of town to a yeah. farm we're asking them to you know just stop at something that might be on their way to work anyways absolutely and something else i was going to ask because you said you're always going to be mo have to be prepared to be mobile have you guys had to move your greenhouse yet? Like, we haven't yet. You know, it's coming one of these days. Hopefully, it's not for a couple more years, but it's always a risk. Yeah. And so, like, how did you figure out how to how to get that space to to rent a space to put your your uh, greenhouse? We, uh, you know, I just uh, I drove around on my bike just looking for space, looking for space, and I saw this space one day. I'm like, huh. I'm just going to go and ask, and lo and behold, like the guy kind of looked at me puzzled. It's like, you want to do what? And, and uh, it seemed like this was the kind of guy who wouldn't really understand what we were doing. But he, it, the, the place where we're renting land is, is a factory that produces like mayonnaise and salad dressing for some of the bigger suppliers. 
And uh, the, like the guy had been in food processing his whole life. The guy lived in the food world and he couldn't directly relate to what we were doing in terms of urban farming, but he could empathize. He's like, yeah, sure, sure, why not? Like yeah. 10 minute conversation. And like by the end of the conversation, he's like, I'll have a key cut for you for the gate. And, and, and it was just, you know, we've been there for seven years now. And we've that's got a good awesome. relationship. Yeah. No, that's good, man. I hope you guys can keep that going. But um well, I tell you what, man. I, I I feel like we covered a lot. I was hoping to get to get as much out of you as I can. Um, anything else you want? Oh, this is something we can do. So, if people want to get involved and they can't they can't travel to see your farm, what's a good way for people to learn from you to to take advantage of all your skills that you've acquired over the years and your knowledge? And let's say they want to start bit large production microgreens. What's a great way for them to learn from you? Yeah, so we basically, you know, I've got an online workshop series that people can can buy. It's only 50 bucks US. The feedback I get on it is people like, it just it clears everything up for them, right? It's, it's good information. Um, for people who are more advanced growers, I do phone consults all the time. And so when you're when people often when they're scaling up and they they just they need to sort of tie up loose ends, we do a phone consult and that kind of just gives them a sense to, you know, to ask those questions and sort of check in. And I tell people, like, you'll save that 75 bucks or 150 bucks, depending how long we meet, you know, by the end of the phone call. So, so there's not, not a big amount of risk in it. So, yeah. And, you know, I'm on the, we're on the internet, foodpeddlers.ca. We do social media stuff. And, and that's where they can get the course, too, at foodpeddlers.ca? Uh, urbanmicro.ca, actually, which okay. is my own website. But the food peddler stuff, you know, just seeing some of our pictures and postings will give you a sense of how the operation works. So... Yeah, that's a good way. Well, that's awesome. Well, hey, man, thanks for your time. And I've had fun talking to you this whole time. Hope you had fun on the podcast. It's been good, yeah. And we've still got two more days to go here, so I'm yeah, super stoked. Yeah, it's so crazy, right? Yeah. Well, anyways, man, thanks again. And everybody, I hope you guys enjoyed this show. Five.